I'm Howard Hecht. I'm Fred McClymans. And you are listening to The Coil. On today's edition of The Coil, we're talking typology. No, not typography, but typology. The study of behavioral motivators, the things that make us go bump in the night. In today's era of pervasive media, we see information everywhere, and a lot of that information is focused on eliciting a behavioral change from us. They're advertising. They're asking us to do something. They're trying to drive us to a particular outcome. We all have different behavioral motivators. We have different aspirational values, things that we look towards for guidance. Howard, welcome to today's coil. Thanks, Fred. Great to be here. What are your behavioral motivators? What makes you get up and, and gets you excited about doing something in the morning? Obviously, it's all about the coil. I live for this show. I live to edit this program way too late every week. It's the pressure that you, Fred, put me under. And I love it. I am your biggest fan. Likewise. <clears throat> Thank you. So with that in mind, think about this for a moment. We really are at a point where when you start to look at the way we're trying to exert influence in the, the Internet today, in the interwebs, whatever we want to phrase that today, when we're trying to exert influence, we look to things like uh, influence campaigns. We try to rally a community or a crowd around a particular idea. We try and activate them. We try and get them to do something that's going to benefit not necessarily them, but us. We see this across the board from politics to selling Campbell's soup and Oreo cookies. Of course we do, and that's really what we've always done, but we just have the actual um, – we basically have the closed feedback loop now. I mean, essentially, we've been for decades, centuries, millennia trying to influence behavior, trying to create behavioral motivators. But right now is when I actually when I actually send one out, I can find out in an instant what you thought of it, or at least I can get an inkling. I can get, I can get feedback, and I get feedback in near real time, and I get more of it than I ever did before, and it's already – it's already been datafied. I love that word, datafied. And you're right. What we're talking about today is an element of real-time engagement, the ability to push something into the marketplace, push it into the Internet, to push it out through various pervasive media channels. To push it real good. Push it real good. And, and to not just do that through one channel but through multiple and to determine very quickly which thematic messages resonate and which variations of those messages are resonating stronger than others. It gives us the ability to literally filter out dissonant information and actually refine what we're doing very quickly, very rapidly. And that, Howard, is actually a great boon to mankind and a huge threat because it means that we're putting out information that's being changed in real time. Well, that's, that's the other thing. Um, when we get rid of dissonance, we're also getting rid of dissent. We're creating a homogeneity in our message, and that's, that's very problematic for me uh, because, uh, you know, as a strange person, I, I would, of course, be uh, engineered out of the equation, and, and my voice would be stifled as, as, it, you know, this, as, as what will happen when you edit this program. That is precisely what will happen here. Now, assuming that's a given— 
you know, let's take a look at the at the bigger issue there. Is that really such a bad thing that yes. a marketer can go into the marketplace and they can push out a message and weed out that 20% uh, on either side that are not going to be receptive to their message and hone in their message to that core base, the top of that bell curve, the people who are going to be activated and respond to the greatest value? From a marketing perspective, of course, that's just fine. The problem is when it comes into politics. The problem is when it comes into the organs of government. The problem when it comes into faith. When it comes into all of these areas that it's coming into our lives, when we're gamifying absolutely every process, that's a problem. That may be a problem. However, think about politics. What is politics if not marketing? What is religion if not marketing? It's there. What is health care? Look at the whole issue surrounding Obamacare. What is the real issue around Obamacare? It's marketing. It's how different constituencies are marketing their messages, trying to get you to believe their side versus the other side. That's the big issue here. It's marketing. And if you can identify the motivators and the aspirational values of your audience and target those, you will win. I'm not saying it's right, but you will win. Fred, it, it's a well-known fact that the, the Roman Empire declined because of marketing. And this is right where we're headed right now. This is it. Bread and circus, baby. Right here. You're talking about actually taking, it's a reductive trend. You're talking about taking complex issues, simplifying them for an easy, digestible little nugget, and you're basically flicking pellets down the throats of turkeys. That's what you're doing. And Getting them ready for Thanksgiving. As and they're not organic. And they don't they, taste good. As analysts, that's what you and I do best. We are reductive oh, 101. Oh, so when we come back from our break, we'll be talking with somebody who actually knows a little bit more than we do. In fact, a lot more than we do on this particular subject. In this segment of today's coil, we're talking with Dr. Christine Paraxlis of Johnson & Wales University. Christine, welcome to The Coil. Thank you, Fred. Hello, Fred, and hello, Howard. Christine, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing at uh, JWU? Sure. Currently, I'm teaching in the MBA program at the Alan Sean Fonstein Graduate School. Christine, a lot of your research is focused on typology. I'd like you to explain what typology means, not academically, but what it means to you. Sure, absolutely, Howard. Um, when, I, when I study typology and when I think of it in the real-world application, I'm looking to find out what motivates the people around me, what motivates the worker, what motivates the business owner, what motivates my students. And typology theory allows us to categorize in some ways individuals and understand how do I get the best out of this person? How do I get peak performance? How do I find environments that jazz them and that satisfy them? Chris, I'd like to follow up on, on Howard's question there. You're a, a professor at the graduate level at, uh, at JWU, and you're also doing research into topology theory. And I'm curious, how your work uh, you know, as a professor has influenced your work on topology theory or, or vice versa. And if you think there are um, you know, other professions out there that would have a similar relationship with, uh, with topology theory. Sure, absolutely. Um, when you take a look at, at 
what industry is saying they're looking for in graduate students. And, and when you take a look out in business, um, a lot of a lot of research is pointing to managerial competencies, those soft skills. Um, so employers are saying we want to see more of the soft skills and, and research, um, quite frankly, about the curriculum of graduate schools uh, yields the same type of data. Um, we want to see um, certain abilities of innovative leaders in this global economy. Um, we want to see self-awareness. We want to see self-control where, where the individual understands their, their, their own unique strengths and their limitations. Um, where they can learn to effectively read not only their own emotions, but but to understand the why of what they feel and mastering the self. And, and this other thing called social competence, um, you know, we're realizing that we need to develop these at the, at the graduate level. And, and the business owners with whom I work say, I want to see that in my environment as well. So when you start to look at, okay, we need development of self-awareness and social competence, behavioral motivators allows us to develop both of those areas and in a really powerful way. Um, and not only, um, it, it can cross all industries, Fred, so you can use it with different socioeconomic classes, you can use it with different industries, you can use it in a classroom setting or you can use it in a boardroom. Christine, I was wondering, you know, I've been looking at a lot of recent graduates um, in the last few years, and I'm wondering if there's a corollary by the fact that the socialization that they go through has been gated somewhat by the fact that they spend they were they were effectively born online, so their interactions are machine based. Um, they don't actually even have conversations. They do most of their communication textually via text via SMS. So I'm wondering if that's something that's requiring a bit more almost remedial social competence. I agree with you, Howard. Um, social is maybe defined a little differently. Uh, when I taught at the undergraduate level and I had um, students, I, I had the opportunity to run patterns on many of my students. So to see their core behavioral motivators, so I could understand the motivators of each student in my class. And then I could understand the class as a whole, you know, a collective personality. And when you defined, define something like social, the need for social influence, uh, many of my students had high levels of that on their patterns. And what I found, Howard, was they had, they had trouble sitting in class for two plus hours and not being connected to this technical network, this social network, checking to see what was going on with Facebook, et cetera, um, which is interesting because they're not necessarily talking to each other in class, that they, they wanna talk through technology. And you're right, I believe we need more than ever to go back to some of those soft skills because technology has hampered some of the development of that, in my opinion. We recently explored the concept of social capital in, in an episode of The Coil. And I'm wondering, is social competence a component of social capital, a derivative, a byproduct? What, what do you think the relationship of social competence is to social capital? So I see multiple subsections. So when I look at, when I look at, um, let's, let's go with the, uh, the type pattern that I was talking about, high social influencers, their currency tends to be social. 
So who knows what um, their currency tends to be, um, who they're connected to, who they can influence, um, how they can move through or, or derive resources through that currency called social. Um, but there are, I believe there are other subsections to explore. For example, like at a, a deeper level, I think it was Goldman, Boyatzis, and McKee who talked about this thing called empathic accuracy. So when you look at the sub, like an undercurrent under social capital, it's, it's like social facility, which is another word they use, where we're able to move through these interpersonal relationships with competence and influence others. And I wanna tie back to the behavioral motivators. When you understand your own wiring, you understand why you feel what you feel in that interpersonal interaction. But more importantly, you now attach new meaning to why someone's behaving or reacting to you in a certain way. And I can give examples if necessary. Please go ahead, give examples. Excellent. So in class, um, or even sometimes when I'm out in industry, what I'll oftentimes see is I'll see an inv individual who is really very critical. So they are they're providing um, really a lot of um, what can feel like negative data or negative input. They can be actually resistant to what we're trying to do in that boardroom or what we're trying to do in that classroom. But the real meaning, so when you start to think of how, how do you move through these social relationships, how do you handle this? Really, when you look underneath a lot of that behavior, very oftentimes it's a complex problem solver who has beautiful levels of critical analysis. They're looking for evidence-based logic. They wanna make data-driven decisions and they're a more closed system. And, and unfortunately, sometimes they're not as in touch with the social realm. They're, they're caught in the data rather than how the people feel as they deliver the data. So if you're maneuvering or you're, you're, you're trying to work with a person like this and you can see that I'm not gonna personalize this behavior, but instead I'm gonna meet the person where they need me to meet them, which is with some logic, with some evidence, and then maybe bridge back to the socio-emotional. So a little way from the task centric, back over to that socio-emotional realm and bridge for them. What typically happens is we end up in reactionary patterns. So I'm reacting and I'm gonna lose social capital. I'm going to lose some, some of that power base of those interpersonal relationships and development because I'm reacting rather than understanding and attaching the right meaning to behaviors. So, Christine, in, uh, in my work, uh, I spend a lot of time looking at uh, you know, trends in, uh, in market behavior. Uh, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, something between a, a business and a consumer uh, or, uh, you know, a politician and a, a voter, but, you know, looking at the relationships between them. And very often we see, um, you know, aspirational drivers playing a very significant role in, uh, in the behavior of individuals and even in the way that, uh, you know, that entities can shape their message, uh, you know, to, to find that a common bond, you know, with their, with their partners within their ecosystem. 
Mm. I'm curious, you know, how aspirational drivers, you know, relate directly to the behavioral motivators that you're talking about. And and is there actually a way that you can use a a behavioral motivator, you know, as an, on an individual level to kind of, uh, you know, understand where you fit in, in your decision process and sort of improve the, the confidence that you have in your ability to make decisions? Sure. Um, you know, researchers, I think it was in the 1920s, used um, a, a term, a need system. And Fred, sometimes it, it concerns me. Um, I actually have research that I, I haven't released. I have research that I um, removed many of the findings because behavioral motivators are so powerful that um, I, I, I always want to keep um the ethics perspective front and center as I release some of maybe the findings. So I say that because when you look at marketing, um, even the words that are utilized can click into those need systems so they can trigger those motivators. Uh, so you can, you can end up with manipulation, unfortunately. We've looked at um, adoption of technology relative to some of these factors. And, you know, very interesting findings, uh, much of what you would typically um, um, expect, you know, an early adopter is going to be a, a little more of a risk taker, have more propensity to risk, a little more informality with rules, et cetera. And, and those things don't surprise us. But when you start to understand that even words can trigger behavior, I take that um, very, very seriously because I would never want to see these behavioral motivators used for manipulation, although that is what marketing oftentimes would do. Yeah, Christine, I think that's actually the holy grail of all internet marketing is to is to get a hold of behavioral motivators and be able to uh, play them like a you know like a xylophone on the heads of everyone watching watching their screens, whatever screen they happen to be watching. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I think that's really, you know, so I, it's, it's interesting. I'm wondering, you know, is there a way you think that you could perhaps do research that, uh, that safely decoded that, you know, and actually was something, because I know that there, you know, I know that that's what, you know, most people in the marketing realm right now are doing. I mean, they're, you know, Fred likes to talk about content marketing and, and it's, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, there was a, there was a great thing that was making the rounds on Facebook. It was a, it was actually the, you may have seen it, it was a video of, of a little girl putting a coin in a cup of, uh, you know, in front of a, a European holding a, a, a bass and a bow. And then he starts playing and all of a sudden an orchestra walks out and plays, you know, a beautiful song. And, and mm-hmm. it was all wonderful. And I, I was reading all the comments. Oh, it put a tear to mine. It was a, it was a damn bank advertisement. I mean, that's what it was. It was a damn bank advertisement. Right. And that's what content marketing is. It's it's basically, I want you to care. Is there mm-hmm. any way you think that a research study could be conducted to sort of uh, provide truth serum? What I would love to do is allow the end user, so the consumer, to understand themselves better. So that if they do make a decision, it's not a decision because there was this need system triggered or the, these internal behavioral motivators triggered sometimes without even realizing, um, you know, we know that fear is a great motivator. And, and for years, we've seen fear used, um, 
you know, even some of the um, political campaigns have used fear, as we know, and some were pulled years ago. Um, I would rather, you know, really teach the consumers that know thyself, know thyself so that you know what your, your flip switches are so that you can't be manipulated. And when you do make that decision to purchase, it's for the right reasons. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. And, uh, you know, Howard is right. We, we do talk a lot about, uh, you know, content marketing and uh, the drivers, you know, what, you know, what brings a, a consumer to feel uh, a common bond with a brand and why content marketing in some cases can be incredibly successful and in others, you know, just fall flat on its face. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, consumers do have sort of this this innate um uh, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call it a, a bullshit meter, you know, that when they see somebody putting something out, uh, you know, if it doesn't resonate with with that brand or that politician or that organization, you know, if it really does look to be just a piece of, you know, here, love us because we're now saying X instead of Y, I think most people can see that. It's when you get into the more, you know, the more subtle applications, um, you know, where I think a lot of people, especially if it's an emotional um, uh, you know, trigger for them, they, they kind of lose that. And it's, uh, it's a very, I think, a very significant problem that we face as a society today. Absolutely. And there are certain patterns that are more prone to those emotional triggers. Um, you know, I feel I have some of the best students on the planet at the grad school. I enjoy them, them so, so much. Um, and many of my students have, you know, real strong levels of critical analysis and critical thinking. So they are listening to an ad or watching an ad with, I, I think mistrust is too strong of a word, but, but with the right amount of discernment. And yet there are patterns that if, if you have not developed that critical thinking, um, the emotion gets triggered and the behavior is happening quickly. And I do worry about that, as you say. So, Chris, right before we do our break, is there any uh, any content marketing you'd like to do? Anyone you want to do a shout out to? I, I would. I would love to say a big hello to the students at um, the Alan Sean Feinstein Graduate School at Johnson and Wales. Great students, and I learn from them every day. We have 120 countries represented. Fantastic, uh, Chris. Thank you very much. When we come back on the next segment of today's coil, it's turntables. On this segment of today's coil, it's turntables, where we're giving our guest, Dr. Christine Paraxlis, the microphone. Christine? Fred and Howard, with behavioral motivators, we know that there are environments, certain environments, which bring out the best in individuals because those environments trigger an individual's behavioral motivators. So I want to ask you, in what environments have you felt most motivated? Wow, uh, Christine, that's a that's a great question. From uh, for, and I have to answer this obviously from from my sole perspective. Uh, but when I think about environments that you know I, I felt the most comfortable in, uh, or have uh, have been the most welcoming, uh, welcoming. Um, you know, boy, I, I'd I'd pretty much be um, be split between. 
some of my my early days uh, just with my family that was incredibly supportive of a lot of what I wanted to do, even when it didn't really con conform uh, to the norm. Uh, they gave me a lot of flexibility and a lot of support to kind of go out and you know find out for myself what the world was really all about, and uh, and that was great. Um, I think you know, uh, moving on into uh, adulthood, one of the things that I've I've tried to do um, throughout my career is to you know have a, a very close group of you know confidants, uh, people that uh, I can you know kind of tap into uh, to kind of get a, a really uh, an unbiased and honest opinion of of what I'm doing and what I should be doing, what what's working, what's not working. Uh, and we bounce ideas off each other. We give each other advice. We, uh, you know, get to the point when we need to, um, you know, but I think for me, it, it was, you know, creating that kind of a group or actually kind of accidentally falling into that, that kind of a group and recognizing it, um, you know, when I'm with these individuals and when we're, we're talking together, um, you know, it's, uh, it's incredibly uh, empowering for me. That's and awesome. I, I would suggest anybody, you know, Find your find your confidants. Those are the people that you'll keep with you your entire life. Sure, absolutely. For me, it would be Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to say that because Fred's Miss America answer. You know, just, I was I was just sitting here and I, world you know, peace. And world exactly. And, I was and world say, peace. If he says world peace, I'm, I'm I'm pulling the plug on this whole thing. But you know, how, but Howard, you know how much fun I've had in in Vegas and how empowering Vegas can be. <laughs> So and I actually despise Vegas. So you see, you know, so that that was the but um, so I, I took the question a bit different. I was I'm taking it on a much more granular level. It's like you said, what environment? And so, you know, I'm I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about the actual environment. And, and for me, uh, Christine, it's actually uh, in speaking in front of large groups, particularly the, the very challenging ones where I, I don't feel like I'm. You know, where I feel like I'm speaking to people who, you know, an incredibly shrewd audience. Uh, I'm speaking to an audience or on a topic that I'm not incredibly well versed, or, or conversely, something that they are incredibly well versed. Um, so it's the it's the tough crowd. It's the tough crowd in, in sometimes in a big room or in a very small room. If it's sometimes uh, like, for example, addressing a, a board of directors in a in a contentious environment. Um, one of one of my favorite examples of of something that was motivating, and again, you know, motivation. You d you didn't necessarily say comfort. So you didn't say comfort. You said motivated. So I took it that way. Very early in my career, I was I was um, contracted to do a speech to a user group, and you know, I was still relatively young. And I assumed when I thought of user group, I thought of fifty or sixty people in a hotel conference room, and I would get up and and do a you know a little hour chat. Uh, this was happened to be in Amsterdam, and as I was driven to the venue, I, when we pulled up, I was, why am I in front of a large sports stadium? It was the IBM, U user, the IBM European Users Group, and there were about 6,000 people in a soccer stadium. <laughs> and I got very motivated very quickly. <laughs> I was motivated by abject fear, but it was also exhilarating because I was... I was the focus of people in front of a soccer stadium, and if you'd ever seen me attempt to play any sport, you you know that was something I never thought would happen. So, so it was something that I I think um, you know I, I do a lot of speaking, and I'm known for it, but it's still it's still very exhilarating and very motivating. So any one that I do, I I find great motivation in that. 
Excellent. Major thanks to our guest, Dr. Christine Paraxlis, my co-host, Fred McClymans, and to you for joining us on this episode of The Coil. For more information about the show, check out our website, thecoilradio.com, or follow us on Twitter, at The Coil Radio. Archived episodes of this program may be found on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. Please join us next week for another great episode of The Coil. <laughs>